who has taken us from being children of wrath to being sons of the kingdom. It's a song we sometimes sing that His wrath was against me and now I'm seated at His table. Jesus, all we can say is thank You. I pray that You'd stir our hearts to see the glorious nature of Jesus who took upon Himself the sins, the punishment of the sins that we deserve. You made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And He Himself bore our iniquities in on the cross. For the righteous died for the unrighteous so He might bring us to God. And You did that when we were sinners. God, You extended Your loving kindness to us when we were We're dead and wicked and vile and against you. That's when you loved us. And I pray that we would love you because you first loved us. So help us now to be stirred in Christ, to hear your word. This is open, proclaimed, help me. The topic today is so difficult. And yet, Lord, may you you bless our time together to, to point us to Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Children can come up and get their notes up here. Those who like to go to Children's Church can uh, go out the back door. Well, before I begin this morning, when I, do, I do want to make one announcement. Um, Garth Breckenridge, the Breckenridge family is moving Thursday. Right, Garth? Is that right? Um, so those of you who want to, to help him out um, can uh, talk with Garth today. Uh, just uh, They're moving a lot of things throughout the, the week, and so mostly the big and heavy stuff, they need a, a few burly hands. So if you could help Garth, if you could talk to him today, that would be helpful. I have not given him a call. Directions Thursday night, 6 o'clock. I don't know how long it's going to take. A couple hours. Not long. An hour or two or three maybe. Um, he'll have a truck. So if you guys can help with that, that would be a wonderful way just to serve within the body. Um, and you saw my weekly word this past week. If you're not getting the weekly word, talk to me. There's a lot of uh, announcements there, opportunities. Uh, you can pick up on those things. So uh, just be, be an encouragement to the body is what I encourage you to do. Serve one another. Love one another. Well, as most of you know, we've been in an overview study of the history of the Bible. Uh, we've taken the Bible, divided it into 12 historical eras, which you see there on the, the screen. They're not, they're not original to me. They are original to a book called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible, which is an excellent book. We've handed out to non-Christians, people interested in the Bible. And uh, this is Max Anders' chart. We've taken it to kind of scope the big history of the Bible before we uh, step into Hebrews, which we'll do in September. I'm looking forward to getting back to verse-by-verse exposition, but, but now we're doing broad exposition. It's all the same, same vision as to just open the Scriptures to you. <clears throat> we began, whatever it was, about eight, eight weeks ago, vacation, maybe three months ago, uh, looking at the creation. When God created the world <clears throat> and man fell, God destroyed the world with a, a flood. That's the creation stage, all that creation fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. And then we continued on to the patriarch stage. When God initiated His redemption plan through a Chaldean named Abraham, whose family made idols, God chose him up, picked him up, and brought him into the land of promise. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those are the ones we looked at. We then continue the Exodus stage. That's the stage in which God remembered His covenant that we made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and redeemed His people out of slavery from Egypt. Next came the conquest in which God worked through Joshua to bring the people into the promised land. And then we looked at the judges, the dark age of the Bible, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Israel sinned, and God raised up saviors who were called judges time and time again. Then came the kingdom stage, 
We saw the United Kingdom with Saul and David and Samuel and how it broke up into two kingdoms, the Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and how Israel was wiped away by Assyria and Judah then taken into exile, which was our next stage, the exile, which Judah was taken to Babylon to teach them of the fruit of their sin. Last week we looked at the return of Judah from people from, Judah, from Babylon back into the land. And the key there was repentance. They needed to deal with their sin in which they went back in. They rebuilt the, the temple and the wall and the city of Jerusalem. And this morning we'll be looking at the, the silent stage. Now each week we've been singing a song to, to catch up on these. One of these weeks I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, I'm just warning you now, we're going to take these words away. Um, but let's just sing them together. Here we go. Twelve stages in the Bible, let's learn them one by one. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, da 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 da, da silence, gospel. Church and missions. <clears throat> well, this morning we come to the silent stage. Um, I warned you last week this is going to be a difficult one. I mean, of all of them, this, this, is, this is the hardest in some sense because it, it's hard to go through books of the Bible. Um, I mean, it, it was hard when we went through the Kings. When we went through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 1 2 Chronicles, we kind of ignored. But four books of the Bible, it's hard to go through. And last week, when it went through Ezra and Nehemiah, that's pretty hard. And, but you know what I found? It's even harder this week to go through zero books of the Bible. <laughs> We're going to do this week. That's really hard. It's um, been interesting as I've been anticipating the silence. I was talking to a teenager in our congregation. And uh, she said, oh, I'm going to miss the silence. I really wanted to hear that. That was like encouraging to my soul. I mean, my messages in this whole series have been like monster messages. I don't think I've been under an hour in any of them. And here's a teenager in our congregation saying, I wish I could hear the silence message. That, that stirs my heart because it show, shows that kids can understand and they can grasp what the Scripture says and can even be interested when you're just being real about the Bible and they're learning about the Bible. I was talking with my daughter and she said that some people have talked with her and said, what you gonna do, what's your dad going to do during the, the silence stage? Is he just going to go like this? A whole message just going... Well, here's what I'm going to do. My aim this morning is to take you in history from the return to the time of the New Testament. That's really what this is about. This is the intertestamental stage. If you look at all these stages, these are, these are historical. They're not just necessarily walking right through the Bible. It's more like we've taken the Bible in a chronological way and really showing how they all are pointing to Jesus in, in many ways. But we're going to look today at the, the, the time, the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a period we call silence. Not because nothing happened, okay? Because actually lots of things happened. And in my study this week, I just said, what... <laughs> There's so much to share. How, how, do you, I mean, how do you encompass 450 years of history to people who don't know much about 450 years of history? I mean, because I, I don't know much about that time. How, how do you, I mean, th- imagine taking a, maybe a, a man from China and just saying, okay, I'm going I'm to teach you here. I've got an hour. I'm going to tell you all about the United States. Imagine they don't know anything about the United States. You know, they're behind, behind the wall, no internet, and in you know, rural village. They don't know anything about the United States. And you, you tell them all about it. It's like, it's hard. What do you do? What do you choose? And so I found it challenging. This is the period of silence. It's a silence because Malachi is the last prophet in our Old Testament. He's the last prophet chronologically. After he wrote, there were 400, 450 years of silence, which God didn't speak. There were no kings anointed by God to rule. There were no prophets during this time. There were no judges raised up to deliver the people of God. It was a time of silence. But it, listen, it's not a time which God abandoned His people. Um, if you know anything about the history, you realize that God was still working. But just He wasn't giving new revelation. God was present among them. He was protecting them, providing all their needs, providing some miraculous military conquests. 
we'll touch on just a little bit. And in many ways, some of his people were trusting him. I mean, it's a typical story that you've got Israel and, and many of them are going astray, but there is this pocket, there is this remnant in Israel who's trusting God and God is showing himself true to them. I think the best way for us to begin uh, our lesson today is by, and it, it's kind of a lesson, it's, it's less than a sermon today, it's more of a, a Bible history lesson, though I trust there will be some preaching in here. But, but I, I think the best way to begin is to think about your experience if you would read through the Bible consecutively. Starting in Genesis, you'd read about the creation, like I said, and then you get to Exodus, and you read about the whole Exodus, and then in the second half of Exodus, you get to the law, and then, and then in in Leviticus, if you've had any experiences I have many times, you get in Leviticus and you just kind of, ooh, you're in the mud trying to get through all those laws. <clears throat> but imagine you get through that and you read the wanderings in Numbers and you get to Deuteronomy and hear Moses' last sermon and then, then, it, then it logically goes next into the whole Judges and Joshua and the conquest of land. You get that and then, then after the land is there, then the Judges come and, and you see that. And then Ruth comes up and Ruth kind of slides right in there in the time of Judges. You have You've already got some kind of framework for that. And, and then after Ruth come the historical books. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings kind of tells you the story of Israel and Judah right on through. And then First and Second Chronicles repeats the same thing. You're like, oh, I've heard this before. And you're going through, you're reading that. And then after Second Chronicles comes Ezra and Nehemiah. You're like, yeah, I've seen the people in the, the land and yeah, they're coming back and I understand that. And then Esther, okay, that she's in Persia. That's understand. Okay, they're back. <clears throat> They're in the midst of the exile period. I, I understand Esther. And then you hit the wisdom literature. right? The Psalm, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And uh, you know all five of those books. And you say, okay, I can understand those. You maybe slot Job back to where Abraham the patriarch was. And the Psalms, a lot of David, though one of Moses and one of Solomon, a lot of Asaph and the temple worship. And you, you can understand that. And you can understand Solomon's wisdom because I already read about Solomon. You kind of put that back in there. And then you hit the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, huge prophets, but you think, you know, they're, they're just prophesying to Israel and Judah, and I, I know about them. And then by the time you hit the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, you know, all these twelve, they're written in different places, but if you just do a little bit of work, you can kind of look it up and say, okay, is this prophesying to Israel, is it to Judah, or is it to Edom, or where they are? And, and everything's making sense because... You read forward chronologically and everything that's maybe out of chronological order, you can always kind of fit back in there and figure out what's going on. And then you hit the New Testament. And you go, something's changed. Something's different here. I mean, last time I checked, it, it was Israel was under Persian rule. And now the Romans? Are, what happened? Because we see we don't have the history in the Bible. We don't, we don't know. Or, or you say this, what about the Pharisees and Sadducees? Where did they come from? You know, Pharisees and Sadducees are nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament. And um, then you think about, what, what about the synagogue? I mean, there's so much emphasis upon the synagogue. When Jesus came, he preached to the synagogues. Yeah, the temple was there, but there's lots of synagogues all around. But how did those come about? What are those about? And if you're tuned a little bit to the, the languages of the Bible, you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a sprinkling of Aramaic. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, it's Greek. You're like, well, what's been the change? Why, why has there been some things that have changed? Or, or even some specific questions about specific passages might come to mind, like Acts 6.1 talked about the Hellenistic Jews and the, the Hebrew Jews. And where did this dichotomy come between Hellenistic Jews and Hebrew Jews? How, how is there a difference between there? Or you read in John chapter 10, verse 22 about Jesus going up to the Feast of Dedication. And you're like, Feast of Dedication? You search through Leviticus and Numbers and you say, I don't see any Feast of Dedication. Because it's not there. But the Jews celebrated this Feast of Dedication. Or you read about Jesus talking about the abomination of desolation. So let the reader understand. And like, okay, well, that's hard to understand. But it does have historical reference. And all these things I've talked about have, they make sense in continuity if you understand the history, all right? If you understand the history in the silence period. And I hope, and my, my aim for my message today is help you bridge a gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament and form a bit of a continuity. So you understand a little bit about the Romans. You understand why the New Testament was written in Greek. You understand, maybe get an idea of the synagogues and the Pharisees and what those are about. Maybe give you an insight into some passages you've never had insight in before about. So that's, that's my aim. That's what we are planning on doing. And it's interesting that the, the reason for the confusion 
between the Old Testament and the New Testament because of lack of written revelation. We just don't have any written revelation. That doesn't mean that we're not without historical record, however. There are historical records of what took place, like historians, like Josephus. You guys heard of Josephus? Yes? How many of you heard of Josephus? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Josephus was around the time of Christ, but he wrote of history. He knew the history of the intertestamental period, so he's a reliable source. A guy named Tacitus. Have you heard of him before? Yes? Raise your hand. I. Okay, all two of you. <laughs> Another historian, just looking back there. We also have a set of books called the Apocrypha. You guys ever heard of the Apocrypha? Okay, good. Lots of you heard of it. I've asked several people this week about the Apocrypha. I said, what do you know about the Apocrypha? And they're like, as the deer looks in the headlights, I have no idea what those books are, but I've heard about them before. The Apocrypha were books written in the intertestamental period. Intertestamental period. After Malachi and before Matthew. And I do need to spend a little bit of time talking about the the Apocrypha because there is much debate about the Apocrypha and because I'm going to read quite a bit this morning from the Apocrypha. Okay? So I need to disclaim myself up front, talk about it a little bit so you get a perspective of what it is. Our Bibles we have in our laps. I don't think any of you have a Bible with an Apocrypha. Maybe some of you do. Uh, if you pick up a Catholic Bible, you will have an Apocrypha in it. Like for instance, here's, here's my Jerusalem Bible. This is a Catholic Bible that I have on my shelf. Um, Jerusalem Bible was um, a, like a translation, you know, like we have the NIV and the ESV and the, you know, King James. Uh, this is the Catholic Bible. They also have come out with a, a new Jerusalem Bible, but I got the old one, so I don't have the updated version. But that's okay. 1966 when it came out, funded by the, the Catholic Church. And if you look here at the table of contents, um, you know, much, much is the same. You get down here, First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then here comes the next book of the Bible, Tobit. Okay, Tobit and Judith. You ever heard of Tobit and Judith before? Some of you have. Yeah, Rich, you grew up Catholic. Some of you guys who grew up Catholic, you know about these books. Tobit's a story about a, a young man who was helped by an angel. Judith is a story about a, a woman warrior during the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we don't know much about them because we they're not in our Bibles. But they are in a Catholic Bible. And then after that comes 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees. Okay. These are historical books, much like 1 Kings, 2 Kings, uh, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. They, they tell history. And primarily today, we're going to rely upon 1 Maccabees as it, as it tells the history of what took place from uh, basically Malachi to Matthew, sort of. But it has a, a glimpse in there a little bit. There are other books, wisdom books, um, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, the Book of Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus. These are, these are two books, and the Book of Wisdom and Ecclesiasticus are much like the Proverbs. In fact, uh, this night, several times before we were going to bed, Yvonne, I was here with my, my Catholic Bible reading to you some verses from Ecclesiasticus. Huh? And, and it's interesting that they, they're just so unfamiliar, and some of them sound really good. They, they sound like um, Ben Franklin. I think they're wise sayings worthy to be followed, but some of them are just downright weird. I mean, some of them talk about um, alms making atonement for sin. A lot of emphasis, sometimes I just kind of say, a lot of emphasis on giving, on works. Um, anyway, that was there. And then the prophets, the prophets all look the same, except Daniel has a little bit added to it. And then there's a prophet called Baruch, who basically prophesied maybe time of, of Haggai in the exile. But these are books of the Apocrypha, which are in some Bibles and not in others. And it is helpful, I think, to give an understanding about the, the history of them. You might just really say the Roman Catholic Church accepts them, the Protestant Church rejects them. But it's not, it's not quite as simple as that. The Orthodox Church, by the way, accepts them. Um, it's not quite as simple as that because there are other books in the Apocrypha which aren't included um, in the books of the Roman Catholic Church said these are inspired, books like Second uh, Maccabees, Third Maccabees, Fourth Maccabees, the books of Esdras, Enoch, the Prayer of Manasseh, a book called Susanna. Some say, okay, so what should be included and what, what shouldn't? Well, let me give you a history of these books. They've been around for a long time. 
Uh, some of the books of the Apocrypha were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, if you remember, were written about the time of Christ, maybe a little bit before the time of Christ, discovered in the 1940s, which date back, whatever, 2,000 years. And there were apocryphal books in their writings. These are the Essenes who lived in the Qumran community down by the Dead Sea, stored their scrolls away in some of the caves around there. And because of the arid environment, they've lasted for 2,000 years. We've found them. So the Apocrypha has been around since then. Um, Jesus and the apostles, they knew of the Apocrypha. Uh, their Bible of the day was a Greek Bible. I'll get into that a little bit more. It's called the Septuagint, and the Septuagint in, includes the Apocrypha. Right? In fact, I, I, do have, uh, I do have my Septuagint here. It says, Septuagint, the Septuagint with Apocrypha. <clears throat> and this is basically a Greek translation of the Old Testament, but it's also got the Apocrypha. And, and the Apocryphal books that it has here, however are not exactly the ones that the Catholic Bible has. It has several others. Let's see if I can find the table of contents here for the Apocrypha. It's got, it's got some others. Um, like um, the Epistle of Jeremiah, the Song of the Three Children, Bell and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manasseh. Just, just other, other things that are, that are in here. So it's difficult. It's not like there's the Apocrypha. It's like there's these other writings that kind of spin out there. The early church all knew them. Origen, Tertullian quoted from the Apocrypha because they knew them, though they didn't quote them as authoritative. Jerome knew of these books. Jerome is a, is a key guy in this whole matter. He, he lived around 400 A.D. He was commissioned by the Catholic Church to translate the Bible into into Latin, which was the vulgar language of the day, um, <clears throat> the common language of the day. So that would be called the Latin Vulgate. So Jerome's there translating. He was um, commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church, which had power at that time. You know, this is after Constantine, the Holy Roman Empire. <clears throat> they have funds. Okay, translate this for us. He translated it in Bethlehem, as I remember. And um, he... He was there translating, and, and they also said, the Catholic Church said, uh, and do the Apocrypha as well. And, and he objected, said the Apocrypha isn't inspired. He said, well, do you want a job? He said, I'll do the Apocrypha. <laughs> so he did the Apocrypha as well. But he clearly said these aren't inspired. But, but it's in some sense good that he did, because his translation kept these historical documents around. So they, they spun around since the time of Jerome, but pretty much is the time of the Reformation that the Roman Catholic Church said, these books are part of the Bible. They kind of spun around, kind of, you know, part of the Bible's thumb. Like even some of the King James versions have some of the Apocrypha in there. I think it's helpful historically, but not inspired. But they've always been around. But the time of the Reformation, at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church said, these are canonical, particularly the books that I'm talking about here. These are inspired. These are to be followed. These are to be included in our Bibles. You say, why did it happen? Well, I think about the time of the Reformation. I think there are clear reasons why it happened. Catholics might argue, but that's okay. This is, this is what I think happened. I think at the time of the Reformation, Protestants were reading their Bibles and discovering a truth that they hadn't heard for a long, long time. The truth is what? It starts with a J. Justification by faith alone. They're like, wow, the Bible... Paul is teaching this? Jesus teaches. They're all teaching. You're justified by faith in God. I mean, it goes back to Genesis, right? You believe God and it's reckoned to you as righteous. And then even you get to the New Testament, it speaks about how Jesus was the propitiation of our sin. It's by faith. It's, it's not by works so that no one can boast. It's clear throughout the Bible that it's, it's by faith alone that we're justified before God. And the Protestants are hearing this message and are championing this message. And the Roman Catholics, who've said all along, no, it's faith and you've got to work your way. Right? And the cross says, no, it's imputed righteousness. It's God that, that God just um, imputes us. He considers us righteous. And the Roman Catholics say, no, it's infused righteousness. There's a big difference between imputed and infused. And infused means we become righteous. And, but the truth of Protestants, the truth of the Bible, is know that we're just declared righteous because we are justified and yet we're still sinners. The Roman Catholic Church would put in a lot of works in there, what you've got to do. And, and there's a big battle. And so what are you going to do? And... And one of the things is that the Apocrypha is pretty heavy works-oriented. If you read it, it's pretty heavy works-oriented. And um, there are some things in there that even say that, like I alluded to earlier, giving alms makes atonement for sin. If you give, you atone for your sin. Indulgences, it's pretty nice. And even in Second Maccabees, um, yeah, it teaches the reality perhaps of, of purgatory. 
I believe the Roman Catholic Church included these books because it helped them in their cause contra the Protestants. You know, it's really interesting that this whole, this whole thing about justification by faith alone, so adamant was the Catholic Church to that that they wrote in the Council of Trent, and here I quote from their council, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which merits sin for Christ's sake alone, which remits sin for Christ's sake alone, or this confidence alone is whereby we are justified, let him be anathema. The Catholic Church, on their books, in their inspired tradition, has condemned all of us to hell. And that's what anathema means, if we believe that we're justified before God solely on the basis of our faith. That's how strong it was back then, Trent. And, you know, you might mix with Catholics today who are influenced by evangelical Christians and they seem evangelical, and uh, indeed they might be, but know that the official Catholic official position of the Catholic Church, which is inspired, is that we are condemned to hell because we believe that we are justified by faith alone in Christ. And uh, that's why there can't be any mix between us and the Catholics um, in matters of these things because it's a continental divide. And until the Catholics say, oop, we erred at Trent, then um, these can't mix. Now, there are Catholics who are inconsistent, okay? Um, But consistent Catholics, that's where it stands. So so strong was it that then I believe that they just sucked the Apocrypha right into the canon. All right? That's like... It's like high-level overview of Apocrypha. Okay, we can get into a lot more, but I've run out of material, and we don't have any much time for that. So that's where we're going to finish there. Uh, but to suffice to say this, I believe the Apocrypha shouldn't be in our Bibles. Right? Just flat out, they shouldn't be in our Bibles. Um, they are good history. They are bad theology. Let's put it there. Though there's much that's be helpful for there, it is, is helpful for us. You might be inspired even by... Uh, some of the people's faith. Like as I was reading First Maccabees this week, this, this guy Judas Maccabeus, and I'll share some of that with you. I, I'm like inspired by the guy's faith. And I think you will be too. So there's, there's, there's things to glean from it. But, but consider First and Second Maccabees like uh, good reference tools, other books that you might read, like books on our back tables where the Apocrypha ought to be. Maybe we ought to put an Apocrypha back there. I'm not sure. Alright, so for my message this morning, we're going to look at 1 Maccabees primarily to give you a glimpse of what's going through the First Testaments, but i got to, you know, I'm, I got to preach from the Bible. So we're going to preach from here. I'm going to give you a scope of what's happening. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, it's interesting, gives you a prophetic anticipation of what's going to take place in the intertestamental period. And First Maccabees then basically gives you the details of how it worked itself out. All right? so, so in my silence, my text today is Daniel chapter 2. My, my text is not the Apocrypha, First Maccabees, though we'll read from some of that. But I want to show you how, how Daniel, if we know how it is fulfilled, we can kind of fill some of the gaps in there between the Testaments. So Daniel chapter 2, in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is a dream. He became anxious about this dream. He summoned his conjurers, sorcerers, magicians, and he told them, tell the king... My dream? And then tell the king my interpretation. And they said, we need to... Well, tell us the dream first. He said, no, you guys are magicians. You should know my dream. I'm like, nobody can do that. And they said, well, I don't think anybody can do that. And, and uh, the king said, well, off with your heads if you can't do that. And they said, oh, can, you, can we have more time? And uh, he said, well, maybe Daniel can do it. So they found Daniel, summoned Daniel, who could do it. So he told the king his dream, and then he told the king his interpretation. And we're going to start here in chapter 2, verse 31. You, O king, were looking. Here's your dream. And behold, there was a, a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. So he's a big statue. And then he says, the head of that statue was made of fine gold and its breast and its arms of silver, right? Its shirt was of silver. Its belly and its thighs of bronze. And its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So you got this big statue, gold in the top, silver in the bust, bronze in the waist, and iron and clay in the legs and feet. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, And it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so there's not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there's the dream. Okay? Strange things like dream, like you know, if you, if you crush gold, it, it doesn't go into flake-like substances, but this did, it blew away. This rock that crushed them all was the only thing that remained. And then comes the interpretation. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. Verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, He's given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them. There he is. The head. The golden head is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one that has sovereign over all the kingdoms, wherever anyone was. And we know that in the time of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, ruled over everything. It's right there where it was. Babylonians were in power at the time. But the Babylonian kingdom would come to an end because it says, regarding the, the silver, it says, After you there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, just as silver is inferior to gold, so also another kingdom. And then a third kingdom of of bronze which will rule over the earth. And through the course of history, we know from last week in the exile that Persia, sometimes called Medo-Persia because Persia was really a conglomerate of two people groups, the Medes and the Persians coming together, but it's the Persians predominantly. The Persians were the silver. And then the Greeks came after that. We know from history, and we'll find out today, that the, the Greeks were after that. Inferior to silver and gold because... Gold and silver, first and second place, and bronze is third place in the Olympics. And so likewise here, bronze was third place to these other two. It was inferior, but it was likewise a, a dominant world kingdom. The story of the Greeks ruling over Israel is told in the Apocrypha, which we'll pick up here in a little bit. And then after the Greeks came the next kingdom, which we know now to be the rule of Rome, and then that kingdom was crushed, and then came the divine kingdom. Alright, so that's basically the story of the um, uh, the story of the Apocrypha, but I need to read more. You need to catch those, right? Rome, verse 40. There'll be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so that iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And that you saw the feet and toes, partly of the potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom. And Rome was divided. And it, it will have in it the, the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. They're just talking about Rome and just how it's scattered abroad and divided. Verse 44, and then comes the Messianic kingdom. In those days, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And I think this is prophesying here of the coming of Christ. And the kingdom, that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king that what will take place is in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. All right? That's what's happening on a political perspective during the time of the intertestaments. So we are going to hear... I've got to find my place here. I'm not real comfortable. Let's see. First Chronicles, Second Ezra, Nehemiah, First Maccabees. Here we are. First Maccabees. I'm going to read the first verse of First Maccabees. And I'm, I'm doing awful on time, by the way. So I could go an hour and a half maybe, or we could... We'll, we'll figure it out. Verse 1. Alexander of Macedon, the son of Philip, had come from the land of Katim and defeated Darius, king of the Persians and Medes, whom he succeeded as ruler at first of Hellas. Alright, lots of things going on here. First of all, we're introduced to this man named Alexander of Macedon. He's also known as what? Alexander the Great. He was the ruler. He was the one um, who came to have great success in military campaigns. Uh, ruled over the whole world. He lived about 350 B.C. So you think about um, 
the time of Malachi finished, whatever, 420 B.C., or about 70 years later, maybe 100 years later, up comes Alexander the Great. He rules the world. He says he, he's the first at Hellas. Hellas is where he lived. Hellas is the, the Greek word for Greek. So here he is, a Greek. We're introduced into the Greek culture. The reason why the Greeks took over is because they defeated here the Persians and the Medes. The Persians are no longer in control at the time of the New Testament because Alexander the Great conquered them. Now, he was conquered by the Romans shortly before the New Testament, but Alexander the Great conquered the Medes. Alright? I think many of you know that. Okay? I'm kind of history stupid, so I, I learned much of this this week. But anyway, we see here, Maccabees continuing, verse 2. Alexander undertook many campaigns, gained possession of many fortresses, and put the local kings to death. So he advanced to the ends of the earth, plundering nation after nation. The earth grew silent before him, and his ambitious heart swelled with pride. He assembled very powerful forces and subdued provinces, nations, and princes, and they became his tributaries. just talks about how the whole world was governed by the time of Alexander the Great. It was the heyday of the Greek Empire. I mean, if you, if you graph the Greek Empire on a, on a time chart... Right here, Alexander the Great is at the top because once, once he declines, everything, everything dies from there. In fact, the kingdom here didn't last very long because Alexander the Great died at age 32 in 332 B.C., only a few years after gaining worldwide control. The cause was death under speculation, but he died at a young age, 32. And First Maccabees then talks about what took place around his death. It says here in verse 5, um, but the time came when Alexander took to his bed in the knowledge that he was dying. So here's insight. Alexander is in his bed. He's on his deathbed. He summoned his comrades, noblemen who had been brought up with him from his youth and divided his kingdom among them while he was still alive. So he divided. Okay, I'll give you these. I'll give you these. I'll give you this. I'll give you this. Alexander had reigned 12 years when he died. Each of his comrades established himself in his own region all assumed crowns after his death, they and their heirs after them for many years, bringing increasing evils on the world. Alexander had no rightful heir to his throne, and so he divvied it up to his friends, if you will. Four regions where it came. Ptolemy ruled over Egypt in the south. Cassander ruled over Macedonia in the west. Seleucius ruled over Babylon and Syria in the east, and Antagonus become the ruler of Asia Minor in the north, but his reign didn't really last very long. But it divided up basically into four sections, north, south, east, and west. What's amazing about this, this was prophesied by Daniel. So I know you got your Bibles open there to Daniel. Let's look at Daniel chapter 8. This is another vision, this time to Belshazzar, uh, who was another Babylonian king in the time of Daniel. This one doesn't go quite the scope of, um, of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. This one just focuses upon Medo-Persia and Greece. Chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to read a chunk of this. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. These are all in Babylon. And then I lifted my eyes and looked. And behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Because animal, ram, two horns. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. And with the longer one coming a plast. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could... Stand before him, nor was there any to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth. So you got this, this one ram, two horns, and then this goat's coming up from the west. And this, this goat came over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. So this flying Kind of reindeer goat, you know? This, this goat, right? Right? doesn't say it was a red nose, but it was this flying goat. And a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And, and he came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. Verse 7, I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. 
Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. So you have this flying goat coming off, conquering the ram, magnifying himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Hint, hint. Four horns coming out of the one horn. This is, okay, just to help you with interpretation a little bit. Okay, Medo-Persia, two nations, really one nation, the ram. Greece coming along, flying along, smashing them. Then the horn going into four pieces, right? The Tetrarch, that's what's taking place here. Let's continue on. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south. All right, catch that. There's one of these. Out of these, one of these, it came one exceedingly great towards the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. So it's some kind of ruler coming up. It's an arrogant ruler saying, I am equal to the command. I'm equal to God is what he's saying. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. So basically, he's going to throw down this sacrifice in the place of the sanctuary. This little one that's going to come up, thinks yourself to God, is going to come and throw down this, the altar. And then I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said to the particular one who was speaking, how long will this vision about the regular sacrifice apply? while the transgression causes horrors to allow both the holy place and his host to be trampled. Right? How long is the, the, the temple going to be destroyed? And, and he said, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the holy place will be properly restored. Then he interprets it. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one like a man. And, and I heard the voice of the man between the banks of the Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So I came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand the visions pertain to the time of the end. Verse 18, Now while he was talking with me, I sank in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and, and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur in the final period of indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. I already told you that because I read, I know the story. The shaggy goat, verse 21, represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Okay, that is, who's the first king of Greece again? Alexander the Great, right. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. All right. So Daniel 8 talks a little bit about what Daniel 2 talks about, but maybe just more in detail with Medo-Persia and, and Greece. By the way, Daniel 8 in this passage here is, is one of the reasons why liberal scholars say Daniel couldn't have written around 600 B.C. or whatever, 500 B.C. or because he's talking about events that took place in 300 B.C. and 200 B.C. It, it couldn't, could, he had to have written later. That's what they say. Well, I think it's because God inspired him to, to write this way. I believe in the power of God's Word. Do any of you know who the little shoot is from the, from the broken big horn? There's going to be a little one that, that rises up. Do any of you know who that is? Ectychus Epiphanes. Very good. Bible scholar among us. Wonderful. I knew you knew that. So, Maccabees talks about Antiochus Epiphanes, picking up the next verse, verse 10. So he's talking about Alexander dying. He's got the four kings abroad. Okay, first Maccabees picks up like this. And there grew a sinful offshoot, Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of King Antiochus. Once a hostage in Rome, he became a king in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. The kingdom of the Greeks about 330... Uh, 137 years later, we're talking about 175 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes IV arises. This is what history tells us. He was a wicked king. He had some divine epitaphs. He took on himself that no other Greek king had done, as wicked as, as they were. Think about this. This is what he said. He called himself Theos Epiphanes. You know what that means? Theos Epiphanes. 
Theos, you know what that is? God, Epiphanes. Anybody Greek scholars out here? What does it mean? Like, what's an epiphany? What is it? It's like a manifestation. It's a revelation. Appearance. So he, he says, God manifest. That's me, Antiochus Epiphanes. I am God manifest. That is exactly like what he's talking about here in Daniel chapter 8 where he says he makes himself up and equal to the commander of the host. He also called himself, after his defeat of Egypt, Nike for us. Nike, you know what that means? Nike. The swoosh stripe means something. I mean, it didn't just say swoosh stripe for nothing. The swoosh stripe means something. What does it mean? Yeah, just do it. <laughs> Actually, it means just done it. That's what it means. Um, victory. Nikao. Victory. So when you see that Nike, it's like, oh, those are the victors. Those are the winners, right? For us. I'm not sure if you know what that means. That means to bear something up. So he can, I'm the bearer of victory. I'm the one that conquered Egypt. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes was. He was hated by the Jews. They changed his name from rather than Antiochus Epiphanes to Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. That's what they called him. He's a crazy man, madman, evil man, wicked man. And um, during his reign, he, he reigned in Syria, okay? If you do your math, here's Israel, Syria's up here, and he made several treks down to Egypt. Now, to get to Egypt from Syria, you go through Israel. And so he went through Israel on several occasions, just despoiling and defiling uh, the people there, taking away uh, different things from the, from the temple. Um, Boy, for the sake of time, I'd love to read some more of, of Maccabees that talks about how he, he just came into the temple and dominated them and, and, and took away parts of their... We will get to that a little bit. But one of the things you understand about Antiochus Epiphanes is uh, that he was, he was a ruler about 130 years after the, um, the Greeks came to power. And uh, the Greeks then had worldwide domination and the Greek, uh, Greek culture was creeping in everywhere. It was extending many, many different places. In fact, um, over time, many Jews were being Hellenized. That means they were becoming Greek. Yes, they were Jews worshiping Yahweh, but they were becoming Greek in culture. Some of them were becoming Greek even more so. Some were willingly taking that on. It says in 1 Maccabees, the next verse, it came then that there emerged from Israel a of renegades who led many people astray. Come, they said, let us reach an understanding with the pagans, the Greeks surrounding us. For since we separated ourselves from them, many misfortunes have overtaken us. <laughs> so we've come apart from them, they fight us. So let's join them. The proposal proved acceptable and a number of people eagerly approached the king, these are Jews, who authorized them to practice the pagan observances. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem. Bad evil. Such as the pagans have. Disguised their circumcision, abandoned the Holy Covenant, submitting to the heathen rule as willing slaves of impiety. Gymnasium in Jerusalem. You might say, what's so bad about that? Exercise, we all need exercise. Well, like the pagans, they used to exercise stark naked, right? That's what they would do. Um, so it's just immodest. It wasn't, it wasn't a good scene for Jews to be there. Uh, I'm not going to touch this, what it means that they disguised their circumcision. I'll leave that to your own thoughts. But they abandoned the Holy Covenant. That is, they, they, uh, they left God. Some people were wholehearted in this and just became secular. Though there were some Jews in Alexandria who in order to survive, learned the language of the trade, which was the language of the Greeks. And when they were down there, they, they just were more comfortable with Greek than with, with their Hebrew. So, you know, it's a little bit like immigrant families. Immigrant families come here to America and they learn English so they can do their trade. And their children, as they raise up, are more comfortable with the English than they are with their Spanish or French or Polish or whatever. And they lose their first language. And all of a sudden, they're Jews without a Bible. And so they even approached the king. And Actually, they didn't really approach the king. It was more... Uh, the librarian Alexander said, hey, we've got all these Jews here. What? We've got this great library. We need to... Can we get, maybe get a Greek translation of the Jewish laws? So they approached the king. king said a good thing. And he summoned the Jews. And he said, hey, how about you all um, get together and translate into Greek? So you know Hebrew, you know Greek. So they translate into Greek so that we can have it for our, for our collection. There were about 70 men who did this. And out of that came what's called the Septuagint. Sept means seven. I mean, 70. There were 70 people who worked on the Septuagint. Oftentimes, 
The Septuagint is referred to as the LXX, right? That's Roman numerals for 50, right? L is 50, X is 10, X is 10, so that's 70. So 70 is the Septuagint. That's, that's where it came from. And it's interesting how they translate the Septuagint with Apocrypha. This is exactly how it should be. The Septuagint, that's the Old Testament. The Apocrypha is translated as kind of at the end of the Septuagint. It's good and helpful, but it's not inspired. They knew that very well. Anyway, with the push of the Hellenization of, of people, Antiochus Epiphanes pushed for that. Um, people were coming Greek at that time. Um, let me see what I want to do next year. Everyone's coming Greek, um, but not everybody liked that. Even though it was pushed, even though there was a gymnasium in Jerusalem, even though there were you know, people kind of defecting and losing their heritage like they always did, there were some who didn't. And these some who didn't follow their ways were called Pharisees. It comes from the Hebrew word paras, pharas, which means to separate or to distinguish. The Pharisees came out of Antiochus Epiphanes and, and in his time when the, when the um, influence of the Greeks were coming upon Jerusalem and the people were saying, no, we've we got to stay away from that. And we separated ourselves. We became Pharisees. They started off religious and as they gained more following, then they became political as well. They learned their lesson well from the Old Testament not to mix with the Gentiles, so they separated for themselves. Um, let me just say also that um, at this time, there were some, uh, some priests, even a priest named Jason, who made a made a pact with Antiochus Epiphanes and said, I will buy the priesthood and I will push then your culture into Jerusalem. So the traitors uniting with Antiochus Epiphanes so as to um, push more and more of the Greek culture in on that. Uh, if I continue on in Maccabees, we have, um, we have Antiochus Epiphanes coming and destroying Jerusalem. In fact, let me read. 1 Maccabees 1.16 Once Antiochus had seen his, earth, his authority established, he determined to make himself king in Egypt and rule both kingdoms, Syria in the north, Egypt in the south. He invaded Egypt in massive strength with chariots and elephants and a great fleet. He engaged Ptolemy, king of Egypt, in battle, and Ptolemy turned back and fled before his advance, leaving many casualties. The fortified cities and land of Egypt were captured, and Antiochus plundered the country. After the conquest of Egypt, in the year 143, Antiochus returned about and advanced on Israel and Jerusalem with his massive strength. Instantly breaking into the sanctuary, he removed the golden altar and the lampstand for the lamp with all its fittings, together with the table for the loaves of the offerings, the libation, the vessels, the cups, the golden censers, the veils, the crown, the golden decoration on the front of the temple, which he stripped off everything. He made off of the silver and the gold and the precious metals. He discovered the secret treasures and seized them. And removing all these, he went back to his own country, leaving the place a shambles and uttering words of extreme arrogance. He destroyed Egypt. He's coming back into Israel. Plunders the, the temple. Continues on and says, hey, look what I got. But he didn't make any friends in Jerusalem. because He don't touch the temple. But he touched the temple. This is in, I think it was maybe one... 70, 168, whatever. There was another time we did the same thing. Went down to Egypt and came back. I don't have the time to tell you all about that, what, what happened. But he came back again the second time. And when he did it the second time, he did it worse. You know, so maybe some articles were replaced and he made it even worse. One of the things he did was he slew this Jason, a high priest, who had made a covenant with him. Didn't matter, he just broke that covenant. He dedicated the temple of Israel to Zeus. I mean, think about that. Here's the God Yahweh. Now he dedicates his temple to Zeus. He erected an image of Zeus in his own likeness on the altar. So here was a statue of himself that was Zeus because he said he's God manifest, right? So himself. He's got his, his own picture on there. I'm Zeus. I'm ruling and reigning the temple in Jerusalem. And then worst of all, he sacrificed a pig on the altar. The Jews, this is the most despicable thing that could ever be done. The pig was the uncleanest of animals. The altar was the most holy of holy places. And Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the holy place in 168 B.C. It's exactly what's being prophesied here in Daniel 8, verse 11. This one little speck of the horn grows up. It even magnified itself to be equal to the commander of hosts and it removed from the regular sacrifice from him and the place of the sanctuary is thrown down. 
He stopped the sacrifices. This is the abomination of desolation. It did not sit well with the Jews. They came to hate Antiochus Epiphanes. Then one of their heroes rose up. His name was Judas Maccabeus. He was one of the Jews who basically fought against Israel. And had we had the time, boy, uh, they'll be in your notes, you'll get in your email. If we had the time, you could read about how, uh, I think, uh, devout and um, godly this man was, Judas Maccabeus, who fought against everything that Antiochus Epiphanes did. He was like Gideon with, with his faith. In fact, there's one time when an army was coming against them and they had only a few and the army coming against them had many. And they said, how can we fight? And he said, it's easy for a great number to be routed by a few. Indeed, in the sight of heaven, deliverance, whether by many or by few, all is one. That's like, that's like faith. If God is for us, who can be against us? If we have by many, if we have few, God is the one who determines our victories. It's all the same, whether we have a few or we have many. On another occasion, right? So, some people came up when, I t- when Judas Maccabeus, by the way, Maccabees is named after him, Judas Maccabeus, when he crushed some of the Antiochus Epiphanes' armies. Antiochus was enraged, and he ordered that you crush and destroy the power of Israel and the remnant of Jerusalem. Wipe them away from the very place. Settle their sons of foreigners in all parts of their territories and distribute their land by lot. And they came up, and again, Judas Maccabeus stood forth and rallied the troops around to defeat the incoming Grecian armies. He said, Be brave. Be ready to fight in the morning against these pagans massed against us to destroy our sanctuary. Better for us to die in battle than to watch the ruin of our nation, our holy place. Whatever be the will of heaven, He will perform it. He said, God will do His will. Let's fight. It's a great, great perspective. To make a long story short, Israel won the battle. And the rest of the story is told in 1 Maccabees chapter 4 where basically they, they rededicated the temple. So this temple which had been desecrated was now rededicated and made sanctified, made holy. He looked for priests who dedicated themselves, who walked purely, and they dedicated the temple again. And what's amazing is this took place according to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. Verse 11, it talks about when the commander destroys... This, verse 12, and on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. He'll fling truth to the ground, perform its will and prosper. And then I heard a voice of one speaking, another saying, how long will this vision about the regular sacrifice apply? How long is this going to be? How long is the, the altar going to be destroyed? And he said, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. 2,300 mornings and evenings. That's either six and a half years because you have 23 mornings and evenings or it's like three and a quarter years. 2,300 mornings and evenings, that's two. You know, cut it in half. There's different ways you can look at it. Whatever it is, 2,300 mornings and evenings, then the holy place will be restored. And um, so there's two different ways you can do it. One is attack his epiphanies, banish things early on, or actually when he destroyed the temple. So there's some debate about that. But... Twenty-three evenings and mornings come and the temple was rededicated again. It was exactly three and a quarter years after Antiochus Epiphanes destroyed the place. And from that day onward, the Jews celebrate the Feast of Dedication. The feast remembering the rededication of the temple which Judas Maccabeus initiated. That's the holiday that Jesus celebrated. All right, well... I feel like I've been discombobulated this morning because it's so much. So silence doesn't mean silence nothing. Silence means lots. But let me point one last scripture to you. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. I think this is a good place to end and I'll end quickly. Galatians chapter 4. Because this is the issue of the intertestinal period. One of the things that was true about the time between the New Testament and the time true about the Apocrypha is there's a great messianic hope. Antiochus Epiphanes was coming. Um, the, the temple was boy, in ruins and shambles and built up in ruins and shambles and kind of back and forth and you know, never totally destroyed but never fully. As soon as it got up, then other people would destroy it and kind of back and forth. And, and throughout the Apocrypha, there is this messianic hope. The Messiah is going to come. And really, that's what I think God was cultivating in the hearts of His people this messianic hope. So when Jesus came, it's like, oh, He's going to be our next Judas Maccabeus. He's going to be our next deliverer. It says in Galatians 4, verse 4, 
when the fullness of time came, right? when all was prepared, when politically Rome was ruling with a Pax Romana across every place, when spiritually the people needing somebody to lead them, prophetically the time, the place, the manner, everything was set. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. There's the glory of the Gospel. It's, I think, where the intertestamental period is, is, is pointing. Trouble and tribulation, you need a deliverer, you need someone to come. And there was this messianic expectation. It was a Messiah a little differently than they thought. But this Messiah was, was coming. And that's just where I, I leave it at the end. I just say that, that as you think about the silence, think about all that happened, it's God preparing His people for the coming of the Messiah. And we can rejoice and we can look back at that. Next week, we will look at the Gospel. I'm planning just going right through the Gospel of Mark. So if you want to read Mark this week, you can do that. We're going to just see the whole scope of Jesus' ministry in this broad-scale perspective expositions that we've been doing. So thank you for your patience. I appreciate it. We, I cut about half of my sermon out, so let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would use these words this history lesson, if you will, so different than our normal preaching, which is so Christocentric and looking at Christ. I pray that you'd use it in some way to touch a heart, stir a heart, cause it to direct itself towards you. Um, you know, that's my heart, my passion, that I'd, I'd exalt Jesus and exalt Him, and He's the one that we need to look to for the remission of our sins. He's the one that gives us joy in times of sorrow. He's the one that helps in all things. So God, I pray that you would accomplish your work through your word which has gone out. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Great. Thank you. Just talk to uh, Garth if uh, you can help him. Uh, Otherwise, have a great Lord's Day. You are dismissed.